0: 37. Pontoon his motives or upon his sanity. He grew bitter at first, as his critics ridiculed or denounced his principles, and at times his voice is as querulous as that of Carlyle. We are to remember, however, the conditions under which he struggled. His health had been shattered by successive attacks of disease, he had been disappointed in love, his marriage was unhappy, and his work seemed a failure. He had given nearly all his fortune in charity and the poor were more numerous than ever before. His famous Street George's Guild was not successful, and the tyranny of the competitive system seemed too deeply rooted to be overthrown. On the death of his mother he left London and, in 1879, retired to Brantwood, on Coniston Lake, in the beautiful region beloved of Wordsworth. Here he passed the last quiet years of his life under the care of his cousin, Mrs. Severn, the Angel of the House, and wrote, At Professor Norton's suggestion, Preteria, one of his most interesting books, in which he describes the events of his youth from his own viewpoint, he died quietly in 1900, and was buried, as he wished, without funeral pomp or public ceremony, in the little churchyard at Coniston, works of Ruskin, there are three little books which, in popular favor, stand first on the list of Ruskin's numerous works, Ethics of the Dust. A series of lectures to Little Housewives, which appeals most to women, Crown of Wild Olive, three lectures on work, traffic, and war, which appeals to thoughtful men facing the problems of work and duty, and Sesame and Lilies, which appeals to men and women alike. The last is the most widely known of Ruskin's works and the best with which to begin our reading. The first thing we notice in Sesame and Lilies is the symbolical title, Sesame taken from the story of the robber's cave in the arabian nights means a secret word or talisman which unlocks a treasure house it was intended no doubt to introduce the first part of the work called of king's treasuries which treats of books and reading lilies taken from isaiah as a symbol of beauty purity and peace introduces the second lecture of queen's gardens which is an exquisite study of woman's life and education These two lectures properly constitute the book. But a third is added on the mystery of life. The last begins in a monologue upon his own failures in life and is pervaded by an atmosphere of sadness, sometimes of pessimism, quite different from the spirit of the other two lectures. Though the theme of the first lecture is books, Ruskin manages to present to his audience his whole philosophy of life. He gives us, with a wealth of detail, a description of what constitutes a real book. He looks into the meaning of words, and teaches us how to read. Using a selection from Milton's lease it is as an illustration. This study of words gives us the key with which we are to unlock, kin's treasuries, that island the books which contain the precious thoughts of the kinly minds of all ages. He shows the real meaning and end of education, the value of labor and of a purpose in life, he treats of nature, science, art, literature, religion, he defines the purpose of government, showing that soul life, not money or trade, is the measure of national greatness, and he criticizes the general injustice of his age, quoting a heart-rending story of toil and suffering from the newspapers to show how close his theory is to daily needs. Here is an astonishing variety in a small compass, but there is no confusion. Ruskin's mind was wonderfully analytical, and one subject develops naturally from the other. In the second lecture, of Queen's Gardens, He considers the question of woman's place and education, which Tennyson had attempted to answer in The Princess. Ruskin's theory is that the purpose of all education is to acquire power to bless and to redeem human society, and that in this noble work, woman must always play the leading part. He searches all literature for illustrations, and his description of literary heroines, especially of Shakespeare's perfect women, is unrivaled. Ruskin is always at his best in writing of women or for women and the lofty idealism of this essay, together with its rare beauty of expression, makes it, on the whole, the most delightful and inspiring of his works. Among Ruskin's practical works the reader will find in first Clavidra, a series of letters to workingmen, and under this last, four essays on the principles of political economy, the substance of his economic teachings, in the latter work. Starting with the proposition that our present competitive system centers about the idea of wealth, Ruskin tries to find out what wealth is, and the pith of his teaching is this, that men are of more account than money, that a man's real wealth is found in his soul, not in his pocket, and that the prime object of life and labor is the producing of as many as possible full-breathed, bright-eyed, and happy-hearted human creatures. To make this ideal practical, Ruskin makes four suggestions, one that training schools be established to teach young men and women three things, the laws and practice of health, habits of gentleness and justice, and the trade or calling by which they are to live; to that the government establish farms and workshops for the production of all the necessaries of life, where only good and honest work shall be tolerated and where a standard of work and wages shall be maintained. Three that any person out of employment shall be received at the nearest government school, if ignorant he shall be educated, and if competent to do any work he shall have the opportunity to do it, for that comfortable homes be provided for the sick and for the aged, and that this be done in justice, not in charity. A laborer serves his country as truly as does a soldier or a statesman, and a pension should be no more disgraceful in one case than in the other. Among Ruskin's numerous books treating of art, we recommend the Seven Lamps of Architecture 1849, Stones of Venice 1851-1853, and the first two volumes of Modern Painters 1843-1846, with Ruskin's Art Theories, which, as Sidney Smith prophesied, worked a complete revolution in the world of taste. We need not concern ourselves here, we simply point out four principles that are manifest in all his work, one that the object of art, as of every other human endeavor, is to find and to express the truth, to that art, in order to be true, must break away from conventionalities and copy nature, 3 that morality is closely allied with art, and that a careful study of any art reveals the moral strength or weakness of the people that produced it, for that the main purpose of art is not to delight a few cultured people but to serve the daily uses of common life, the giving brightness to pictures is much, he says, but the giving brightness to life is more. In this attempt to make art serve the practical ends of life, Ruskin is allied with all the great writers of the period, who use literature as the instrument of human progress. General characteristics. One who reads Ruskin is in a state of mind analogous to that of a man who goes through a picture gallery, pausing now to admire a face or a landscape for its own sake, and again to marvel at the technical skill of the artist, without regard to his subject for Ruskin is a great literary artist and a great ethical teacher, and we admire one page for its style, and the next for its message to humanity, the best of his prose, which one may find in the descriptive passages of Preteria and Modern Painters, is written in a richly ornate style, with a wealth of figures and allusions, and at times a rhythmic, melodious quality which makes it almost equal to poetry, Ruskin had a rare sensitiveness to beauty in every form, and more, perhaps than any other writer in our language, he has helped us to see and appreciate the beauty of the world around us, as for Ruskin's ethical teaching, it appears in so many forms and in so many different works that any summary must appear inadequate, for a full half century he was, the apostle of beauty, in England, and the beauty for which he pleaded was never sensuous or pagan, as in the Renaissance, but all was spiritual, appealing to the soul of man rather than to his eyes. Leading to better work and better living. In his economic essays Ruskin is even more directly and positively ethical. To mitigate the evils of the unreasonable competitive system under which we labor and sorrow, to bring master and man together in mutual trust and helpfulness, to seek beauty, truth, goodness as the chief ends of life. And, having found them, to make our characters correspond, to share the best treasures of art and literature with rich and poor alike, to labor always. And, Whether we work with hand or head, to do our work in praise of something that we love, this sums up Ruskin's purpose and message. And the best of it is that, like Chaucer's country parson, he practiced his doctrine before he preached it. Matthew Arnold 1820-1888 In the world of literature Arnold has occupied for many years an authoritative position as critic and teacher, similar to that held by Ruskin in the world of art. In his literary work, two very different moods are manifest. In his poetry he reflects the doubt of an age which witnessed the conflict between science and revealed religion. Apparently he never passed through any such decisive personal struggle as is recorded in Sardar and he has no positive conviction such as is voiced in The Everlasting yea. He is beset by doubts which he never settles, and his poems generally express sorrow or regret or resignation. In his prose he shows the cavalier spirit, aggressive, light-hearted, self-confident, like Carlyle, he dislikes shams and protests against what he calls the barbarisms of society, but he writes with a light touch, using satire and banter as the better part of his argument. Carlyle denounces with the zeal of a Hebrew prophet and lets you know that you are hopelessly lost if you reject his message. Arnold is more like the cultivated Greek, his voice is soft, his speech suave, but he leaves the impression, if you happen to differ with him, that you must be deficient in culture. Both these men, so different in spirit and methods, confronted the same problems, sought the same ends, and were dominated by the same moral sincerity, life. Arnold was born in Lailum, in the Valley of the Thames, in 1822. His father was Dr. Thomas Arnold, headmaster of rugby, with whom many of us have grown familiar by reading Tom Brown's school days. After fitting for the university at Winchester and at rugby, Arnold entered Balliol College. Oxford, where he was distinguished by winning prizes in poetry and by general excellence in the classics. More than any other poet Arnold reflects the spirit of his university. The scholar Gypsy and Thurcise contain many references to Oxford and the surrounding country, but they are more noticeable for their spirit of aloofness, as if Oxford men were too much occupied with classic dreams and ideals to concern themselves with the practical affairs of life. After leaving the university Arnold first taught the classics at rugby, then, in 1847, he became private secretary to Lord Lansdowne, who appointed the young poet to the position of inspector of schools under the government. In this position Arnold worked patiently for the next 35 years, traveling about the country, examining teachers, and correcting endless examination papers. For ten years 1857-1867 he was professor of poetry at Oxford, where his famous lectures on translating Homer were given. He made numerous reports on English and foreign schools, and was three times sent abroad to study educational methods on the continent. From this it will be seen that Arnold led a busy, often a laborious life, and we can appreciate his statement that all his best literary work was done late at night, after a day of drudgery. It is well to remember that, while Carlyle was preaching about labor, Arnold labored daily, that his work was cheerfully and patiently done, and that after the day's work he hurried away, like lamb, to the elision fields of literature. He was happily married, loved his home, and especially loved children, was free from all bitterness and envy, and, notwithstanding his cold manner, was at heart sincere, generous, and true. We shall appreciate his work better if we can see the man himself behind all that he has written. Arnold's literary work divides itself into three periods, which we may call the poetical, the critical, and the practical. He had written poetry since his school days, and his first volume, The Strayed Reveller and Other Poems, appeared anonymously in 1849. Three years later he published Empedocles on Edna and Other Poems, but only a few copies of these volumes were sold and presently both were withdrawn from circulation. In 1853-1855 he published his signed poems, and twelve years later appeared his last volume of poetry. Compared with the early work of Tennyson, these works met with little favor, and Arnold practically abandoned poetry in favor of critical writing. The chief works of his critical period are the lectures on Translating Homer 1861 and the two volumes of Essays in Criticism 1865-1888, which made Arnold one of the best-known literary men in England, then, like Ruskin, he turned to practical questions, and his friendship Scarland 1871 was intended to satirize and perhaps reform the great middle class of England, whom he called the Philistines, Culture and Anarchy the most characteristic work of his practical period, appeared in 1869. These were followed by four books on religious subjects, St. Paul and Protestantism 1870, Literature and Dogma 1873, God and the Bible 1875, and Last Essays on Church and Religion 1877. The Discourses in America 1885 completes the list of his important works. At the height of his fame and influence he died suddenly, in 1888, and was buried in the churchyard at Lallum, the spirit of his whole life is well expressed in a few lines of one of his own early sonnets, one lesson, nature, let me learn of thee, one lesson which in every wind is blown, one lesson of two duties kept at one know the loud world proclaim their enmity of toil and subvert from tranquility, of labor, that in lasting fruit outgrows far noisier schemes, accomplished in repose, too great for haste, too high for rivalry, works of matthew arnold we shall better appreciate arnold's poetry if we remember two things first he had been taught in his home a simple and devout faith in revealed religion and in college he was thrown into a world of doubt and questioning he faced these doubts honestly reverently in his heart longing to accept the faith of his fathers but in his head demanding proof and scientific exactness the same struggle between head and heart between reason and intuition goes on today And that is one reason why Arnold's poetry, which wavers on the borderland between doubt and faith, is a favorite with many readers. Second, Arnold, as shown in his essay on the study of poetry, regarded poetry as a criticism of life under the conditions fixed for such criticism by the laws of poetic truth and poetic beauty. Naturally, one who regards poetry as a criticism will write very differently from one who regards poetry as the natural language of the soul. He will write for the head rather than for the heart, and will be cold and critical rather than enthusiastic. According to Arnold, each poem should be a unit, and he protested against the tendency of English poets to use brilliant phrases and figures of speech which only detract attention from the poem as a whole. For his models he went to Greek poetry, which he regarded as the only sure guidance to what is sound and true in poetical art. Arnold Island, however, more indebted than he thinks to English masters, especially to Wordsworth and Milton, whose influence is noticeable in a large part of his poetry. Of Arnold's narrative poems the two best known are Balderdad 1855, an incursion into the field of Norse mythology which is suggestive of Gray, and Zorab and Rustam 1853, which takes us into the field of legendary Persian history. The theme of the latter poem is taken from the Shanana Book of Kings of the Persian poet Ferdowsi, who lived and wrote in the 11th century. Briefly, the story is of one Rustem or Rustam, a Persian Achilles, who fell asleep one day when he had grown weary of hunting, while he slept a band of robbers stole his favorite horse, Raksha. In trailing the robbers Rustam came to the palace of the king of Khan, where he was royally welcomed, and where he fell in love with the king's daughter, Tamini, and married her. But he was of a roving, adventurous disposition, and soon went back to fight among his own people, the Persians. While he was gone his son Solramp was born, grew to manhood, and became the hero of the Turan army. War arose between the two peoples, and two hostile armies were encamped by the Oxus. Each army chose a champion, and Rustam and Solramp found themselves matched in mortal combat between the lines. At this point Solramp, whose chief interest in life was to find his father, demanded to know if his enemy were or not Rustam, but the latter was disguised and denied his identity. On the first day of the fight Rustam was overcome, but his life was spared by a trick and by the generosity of Solreb. On the second day Rustam prevailed, and mortally wounded his antagonist. Then he recognized his own son by a gold bracelet which he had long ago given to his wife Tamanie. The two armies, rushing into battle, were stopped by the sight of father and son weeping in each other's arms. Solreb died, the war ceased, and Rustam went home to a life of sorrow and remorse. Using this interesting material, Arnold produced a poem which has the rare and difficult combination of classic reserve and romantic feeling. It is written in blank verse, and one has only to read the first few lines to see that the poet is not a master of his instrument. The lines are seldom harmonious, and we must frequently change the accent of common words, or lay stress on an important particles, to show the rhythm. Arnold frequently copies Milton, especially in his repetition of ideas and phrases, but the poem as a whole is lacking in Milton's wonderful melody. The classic influence on Saurabh and Rustam is especially noticeable in Arnold's use of materials. Fights are short, grief is long, therefore the poet gives few lines to the combat, but lingers over the son's joy at finding his father, and the father's quenchless sorrow at the death of his son. The last lines especially, with their passionate grief set to solemn music, make this poem one of the best, on the whole, that Arnold has written, and the exquisite ending, where the oxus, and mindful of the trivial stripes of men, flows on sedately to join, his luminous home of waters, is most suggestive of the poet's conception of the orderly life of nature, in contrast with the doubt and restlessness of human life, next in importance to the narrative poems are the elegies, Thursize, The Scholar Gypsy, Memorial Verses, A Southern Knight, Obermann, Stanzas from the Grand Chartreuse and Rugby Chapel. All these are worthy of careful reading, but the best is Thersites, a lament for the poet Clough, which is sometimes classed with Milton's Lycidas and Shelley's Adonais. Among the minor poems, the reader will find the best expression of Arnold's ideals and methods in Dover Beach, the love lyrics entitled Switzerland, Requiescat, Shakespeare, The Future, Kensington Gardens, Philomela, Human Life. Kelly a song, Morality, and, Geist's Grave, the last being an exquisite tribute to a little dog which, like all his kind, had repaid our scant crumbs of affection with a whole life's devotion. The first place among Arnold's prose works must be given to the essays in Criticism, which raised the author to the front rank of living critics. His fundamental idea of criticism appeals to us strongly. The business of criticism, he says, is neither to find fault nor to display the critic's own learning or influence it is to know the best which has been thought and said in the world and by using this knowledge to create a current of fresh and free thought if a choice must be made among these essays which are all worthy of study we would suggest the study of poetry wordsworth byron and emerson the last named essay which is found in the discourses in america is hardly a satisfactory estimate of emerson but its singular charm of manner and its atmosphere of intellectual culture make it perhaps the most characteristic of Arnold's prose writings. Among the works of Arnold's practical period there are two which may be taken as typical of all the rest. Literature and dogma. 1873 Island in general, a plea for liberality in religion. Arnold would have us read the Bible, for instance, as we would read any other great work, and apply to it the ordinary standards of literary criticism. Culture and Anarchy 1869 contains most of the terms culture, sweetness and light, barbarian, Philistine, Hebraism, and many others which are now associated with Arnold's work and influence. The term, barbarian, refers to the aristocratic classes, whom Arnold thought to be essentially crude in soul, notwithstanding their good clothes and superficial graces. Philistine, refers to the middle classes, narrow-minded and self-satisfied people. According to Arnold, whom he said arises with the idea of opening their minds to new ideas. Hebraism is Arnold's term for moral education. Carlyle had emphasized the Hebraic or moral element in life, and Arnold undertook to preach the Hellenic or intellectual element, which welcomes new ideas, and delights in the arts that reflect the beauty of the world. The uppermost idea with Hellenism, he says, is to see things as they are. The uppermost idea with Hebraism is conduct and obedience, with great clearness sometimes with great force, and always with a play of humor and raillery aimed at the Philistines. Arnold pleads for both these elements in life which together aim at culture, that island at moral and intellectual perfection. General characteristics. Arnold's influence in our literature may be summed up, in a word, as intellectual rather than inspirational. One cannot be enthusiastic over his poetry, for the simple reason that he himself lacked enthusiasm. The island, however, a true reflection of a very real mood of the past century, the mood of doubt and sorrow, and a future generation may give him a higher place than he now holds as a poet, though marked by the elemental note of sadness. All Arnold's poems are distinguished by clearness, simplicity, and the restrained emotion of his classic models. As a prose writer the cold intellectual quality, which mars his poetry by restraining romantic feeling, is of first importance since it leads him to approach literature with an open mind and with the single desire to find the best which has been thought and said in the world. We cannot yet speak with confidence of his rank in literature, but by his crystal-clear style, his scientific spirit of inquiry and comparison, illumined here and there by the play of humor, and especially by his broad sympathy and intellectual culture, he seems destined to occupy a very high place among the masters of literary criticism. John Henry Newman 1801 1890 Any record of the prose literature of the Victorian era, which includes the historical essays of Macaulay and the art criticism of Ruskin, should contain also some notice of its spiritual leaders. For there was never a time when the religious ideals that inspire the race were kept more constantly before men's minds through the medium of literature. Among the religious writers of the age, the first place belongs unquestionably to Cardinal Newman. Whether we consider him as a man, with this powerful yet gracious personality, or as a religious reformer, who did much to break down old religious prejudices by showing the underlying beauty and consistency of the Roman Church, or as a prose writer whose style is as near perfection as we have ever reached. Newman is one of the most interesting figures of the whole 19th century. Life. Three things stand out clearly in Newman's life, first, his unshaken faith in the divine companionship and guidance, second, his desire to find and to teach the truth of revealed religion, third, his quest of an authoritative standard of faith, which should remain steadfast through the changing centuries and amid all sorts and conditions of men, the first led to that rare and beautiful spiritual quality which shines in all his work, the second to his frequent doctrinal and controversial essays, the third to his conversion to the Catholic Church, which he served as priest and teacher for the last 45 years of his life. Perhaps we should add one more characteristic, the practical bent of his religion, for he was never so busy with study or controversy that he neglected to give a large part of his time to gentle among the poor and needy. He was born in London, in 1801, his father was an English banker, his mother, a member of a French Huguenot family, was a thoughtful, devout woman, who brought up her son in a way which suggests the mother of Ruskin, of his early training his reading of doctrinal and argumentative works, and of his isolation from material things in the thought that there were two and only two absolute and luminously self-evident beings in the world, himself and his creator. It is better to read his own record in the Apologia, which is a kind of spiritual biography. At the age of fifteen Newman had begun his profound study of theological subjects, for science, literature, art, nature all the broad interests which attracted other literary men of his age. He cared little, his mind being wholly occupied with the history and doctrines of the Christian church, to which he had already devoted his life. He was educated first at the school in Ealing, then at Oxford, taking his degree in the latter place in 1820. Though his college career was not more brilliant than that of many unknown men, his unusual ability was recognized and he was made a fellow of Oriel College retaining the fellowship, and leading a scholarly life for over twenty years. In 1824 he was ordained in the Anglican Church, and four years later was chosen Vicar of Street Marys, at Oxford, where his sermons made a deep impression on the cultivated audiences that gathered from far and near to hear him. A change is noticeable in Newman's life after his trip to the Mediterranean in 1832. He had begun his life as a Calvinist, but while in Oxford, then the center of religious unrest. He described himself as drifting in the direction of liberalism. Then study and bereavement and innate mysticism led him to a profound sympathy with the medieval church. He had from the beginning opposed Catholicism, but during his visit to Italy, where he saw the Roman church at the center of its power and splendor, many of his prejudices were overcome. In this enlargement of his spiritual horizon Newman was greatly influenced by his friend Hurlfrude with whom he made the first part of the journey. His poems of this period afterwards collected in the Lyra Apostolica, among which is the famous, League, Kindly Light, are noticeable for their radiant spirituality, but one who reads them carefully sees the beginning of that mental struggle which ended in his leaving the church in which he was born. Thus he writes of the Catholic Church, whose services he had attended as, one who in a foreign land receives the gifts of a good Samaritan, Oh, that thy creed were sound for thou dost soothe the heart, thou Church of Rome, by thy unwearied watch and varied round of service, in thy Saviour's holy home, I cannot walk the city's sultry streets, but the wide porch invites to still retreats, where passion's thirst is calmed, and cares and thankful gloom, on his return to England, in 1833, he entered into the religious struggle known as the Oxford or Tractarian Movement, and speedily became its acknowledged leader, Those who wish to follow this attempt at religious reform, which profoundly affected the life of the whole English Church, will find it recorded in the tracts for the Times, 29 of which were written by Newman, and in his parochial and plain sermons 1837-1843. After nine years of spiritual conflict Newman retired to Littlemore, where, with a few followers, he led a life of almost monastic seclusion still striving to reconcile his changing belief with the doctrines of his own church. Two years later he resigned his charge at St. Mary's and left the Anglican Communion, not bitterly, but with a deep and tender regret. His last sermon at Little Moron, the parting of friends, still moves us profoundly, like the cry of a prophet torn by personal anguish in the face of duty. In 1845 he was received into the Catholic Church, and the following year, at Rome, He joined the community of St. Philip Mary, the saint of gentleness and kindness, as Newman describes him, and was ordained to the Roman priesthood. By his preaching and writing Newman had exercised a strong influence over his cultivated English hearers, and the effect of his conversion was tremendous. Into the theological controversy of the next twenty years we have no mind to enter. Through it all Newman retained his serenity, and, though a master of irony and satire, kept his literary power all was subordinate to his chief aim, which was to establish the truth as he sought it, whether or not we agree with his conclusions, we must all admire the spirit of the man, which is above praise or criticism, his most widely read work, Apologia Pro Vita Sua 1864, was written in answer to an unfortunate attack by Charles Kingsley, which would long since have been forgotten had it not led to this remarkable book. In 1854 Newman was appointed rector of the Catholic University in Dublin, but after four years returned to England and founded a Catholic school at Edgbaston. In 1879 he was made cardinal by Pope Leo XII. The grace and dignity of his life, quite as much as the sincerity of his apologia, had long since disarmed criticism, and at his death, in 1890. The thought of all England might well be expressed by his own lines in The Dream of Gerontes, I had a dream. Yes. Someone softly said, He's gone. And then as I went round the room, and then I surely heard a priestly voice cry sub the night, and they knelt in prayer. Works of Newman. Readers approach Newman from so many different motives, some for doctrine, some for argument, some for a pure prose style, that it is difficult to recommend the best works for the beginner's use. As an expression of Newman's spiritual struggle the Apologia Pro Vita Sua is perhaps the most significant. This book is not light reading. Eh?